Good morning. I'm Michael Loney. <clears throat> Today we'll be reading from Proverbs 31, 10 through 31, which can be found on page 552 in your pew Bible. Again, that's Proverbs 31, verses 10 through 31 on page 552. An excellent wife who can find. She is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he'll have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. She seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands. She is like the ships of the merchant. She brings her food from afar. She rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. She considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hands, she plants a vineyard. She dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She perceives that her, merchants, or her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. She puts her hands to the distaff and her hands hold the spindle. She opens her hand to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. She is not afraid of snow for her household, for all her household are clothed in scarlet. She makes bed coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. She makes linen garments and sells them. She delivers sashes to the merchants. Strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at a time to come. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also. He praises her. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceitful, beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her of the fruit of her hands, and let her work praise her in the gates. This is the word of the Lord. All the guys who are worried that they forgot there's a second Mother's Day, uh, relax. It's okay. Uh, there's not. Super churchy joke about that passage, which is normally used on Mother's Day. That's why it's so funny. It's funnier here than out here. Um, let me pray for us as we jump in. Jesus, we uh, thank you for your word. Thanks for this ancient word um, that we get a chance to reflect upon this morning that reflects your heart, that points to you in so many ways, that you embody in so many ways. Thanks for what we learn through the book of Proverbs as we engage wise teaching about how you want us to live practically in the world around us. Uh, I just ask God that you would help us when it comes to this topic of work. Uh, we come from all different places. The economy is um, volatile, maybe would be a good word. Some things are great. Some things are really hard. Uh, things really are unprecedented in lots of ways. Um, so all of us are encountering the topic of work in different ways. 
I'm thankful that you know exactly where we are. You know what we need. You have a specific word for us in the room. So would you speak now? Uh, I pray that you would draw us to you and that words about work would um, help us worship you and see you as beautiful and good. I wanted to say out loud uh, to pray and say thank you for doing all the work for us to make a way for us to be right with God. We just want to acknowledge up front that you are a God who works not just labor and creation, but you've worked our redemption, which gives us a ton of hope. So I'm so grateful that our righteousness is not dependent on our work. So give us a deep breath in, to be honest, to recognize our need, to lean into where we are. Uh, We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, hey, all joking aside, (laughs) church jokes or otherwise, um, I think this is an incredible passage about work. So you might be wondering, hey, Pastor Chris, how did you pick these topics as we were going through the book of Proverbs? Because we're doing a, a seven-week series on a 31-chapter book that in a lot of ways really is topical. And there are dozens of topics that we could have chosen. What I did was read through Proverbs a couple of times and just made notes of what it was talking about, what the themes were. Um, and I just tried to find things that were repeated often and then things that I felt like were particular needs of our body. And uh, I think the idea of work is something to always be coming back to because you live your life outside of this room. So for a church to just prepare you and equip you to worship in this room or give in this room or serve in this building isn't insignificant, but it's not complete. There's just a lot more to your life that happens outside into the wild of where you live Uh, where you work, where you do your relationships. And so want to always just stop where we can and recognize God's word to the work that we do, which I think should encourage you that God has a specific word, not just a spiritual reality that might make you feel good. It has very practical advice to how you live your life. So so I wanted to kind of choose that topic because I saw it over, uh, over the pages of Proverbs. And as I was going through a couple of passes, I just made the note here, what a beautiful description of a worker of somebody who's diligent, of somebody who works hard, about somebody who, who sees value in what they do, and just kind of made that note. And then as I studied the book of Proverbs more, and I've been saying to you in our introductions last couple of weeks that what we see in Proverbs is kind of a bookend between chapters 1 through 9 and then chapters 31. It's framed like a father in chapter 1 to 9 and like a mother giving advice to their children. So it's a learner posture that we come to the book of Proverbs. And in so many ways, these two bookends function to frame the book for us. And what happens in chapter 31 is an amazing summary of a lot of the themes that have happened through Proverbs. So many scholars see in this like a summary statement of the kind of wisdom that's embodied in Proverbs. We can't tell in English, but in Hebrew, actually, verses 10 to 31 is an acrostic poem taking every letter of the alphabet and working its way down. So that even implies to us there's some kind of summary happening here. There's some sort of statement here beyond just a woman. It's something about the way God wants all of us to lean in. And so the same way that um, temptation is personified as a woman, wisdom is personified as a woman. Men should avoid temptation. Women should avoid temptation. Men should lean in here as well as women when it comes to this description. And I'm not at all trying to take away a beautiful text that women should aspire to and look to and ask God to help them with. But most women report this is a fairly overwhelming text. If this is like the template of what a noble woman looks like, then as you keep score and kind of aspire to things, you find yourself in a tough place because she's both like industrious. uh, She like buys property and she's like super crafty. She's at home and she's out in the marketplace. She's physically strong and then she's 
really tender. You see these poles that oftentimes some personalities would have strengths in and they would have some, some weaknesses in. She actually embodies all of those. And so in a lot of ways, even that helps us recognize this is like a summary. It's a snapshot of how we could engage wisdom and particularly how it applies to our work. And so just finally in that introduction, I think it's meaningful that uh, it's not just about work, but you can't escape words about work in this text. Even as Michael just read it over us, there's just so many phrases and ideas and portraits and concepts and images that are related to work. So wouldn't it be wise of God to cap this book, sending us out into where we live most of our waking hours in the work world to actually embody the wisdom that he has given us? So, so it's an incredibly practical book. And the parallels between chapters 1 to 9 and chapter 31 are beautiful, right? So, so both are described as more precious than jewels. Wisdom and this woman are described that way. Uh, but both are, are aimed at prosperity. Wisdom is found in the city gates in chapter 1, and she is praised here in the final verse of chapter 31 at, at the gates. The fear of the Lord actually opens up the book of Proverbs. 1-7 says this is the beginning of wisdom. And then if you notice there in verse 30, the fear of the Lord is what actually defines her or what she should be recognized for. More than her work, more than her industriousness, more than her beauty, more than anything else, the fear of the Lord is the thing that should be most treasured and that we should recognize about her. So, so those things help us kind of frame this, I think, as a, as a genuine portrait that literarily helps us lean in for a summary and ask for God to help us. So, so in, in that space, then, maybe we could say one more thing. We've been using a metaphor of a tapestry thinking about the way Proverbs is functioning. It's not just like isolated test tubes of different topics that you would just pull one out and look at what does it say about sex or what does it say about money or what does it say about work, what does it say about relationships. What you see is a tapestry where those things are all kind of woven together. And even in this, we'll see like that money and work and justice all kind of work together in a beautiful way that, that promises us a vision of life, a vision of the good life that's integrated. God's after all of who you are. He wants all of your life to make sense in light of his kingdom. And so he's not just after your money. It's actually worse or better than that, depending on where you find yourself with God. He actually wants, wants all of you. And that means as we look at passages on work, we're not just limited to a, a Google search of the words wages or work or jobs. When it comes to kindness and how you treat people, when it comes to generosity, when it comes to trusting in God's sovereignty, those things are, are work passages as well. So just want to expand that idea of a tapestry and the ways to help us kind of see a broader understanding of what God's word says to work. So as you're reading Proverbs, and we've invited you just to read a chapter a day. There's 31 days in July and August, and so we're about to wrap month one. If you haven't joined us, you can just jump in today with verse 30. Next, tomorrow will feel super familiar on the 31st, um, and then you'll grab one more month. But as you read those chapters, what you're noticing is, is lots of application to lots of places in your life in ways that actually hit us in unique, specific ways. So, so a sermon for 30 minutes on work is challenging in a room this size because lots of you are in different spaces when it comes to work. So we have people that are uh, nearing retirement and they're preparing to kind of hand off their jobs to somebody younger, which is a fascinating threshold in somebody's life. There are people who are 20 years past that threshold who, who are on kind of fixed incomes, who are living in retirement, trying to think through how do they give their lives away. There are those of you who are still in school, those of you who are haunted by the debt from going to school, 
There's people that are trying to find jobs. There's those of you who are, who are building your job, your career right now. So you're pressured with finding opportunities to advance in the workplace. And you also find yourself building your family and building your relationships and building your involvement in the community and even building your leadership here in the church. So you're, you're in kind of a building phase. That's very different than somebody who, who's in that latter phase and winding down. And then you can think about those who don't get a paycheck. Their contribution is more relational, whether that's with children or with aging parents or with those that they take care of at home. So there's that kind of work that doesn't hit uh, your tax forms, but it's still very, very meaningful. Right? All of that is all of that is work. And in that space, then I'm comforted by the fact that though I won't probably name the specific place you feel tension, God's word is beautiful and general and specific all at the same time in ways that can address those needs that you have. So, so what I want to do is just walk through this as a as a template or as a, a framework or as a portrait of what like healthy understandings of work would look like. What does it mean from the scriptures to engage our work in light of God's wisdom and, and for his glory? And, and let's just start where this text ends and where the book of Proverbs began. So would you come with me into verse 29? It says, Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her of the fruit of her hands and let her work praise her in the gates. I wanted to start where Proverbs starts. It really is actually the, the focus of the whole scriptures that the beginning place of understanding work is understanding God. You need something transcendent, bigger than just your work, or your work will either crush you or it will bore you. You will find it transactional. You need something transcendent to give the work you have meaning or success will put you in a toxic place of over-esteeming yourself or, or failure or struggle will put you in a damaging place where you under-esteem who you are. And based on that, you relate to people transactionally, upper and lower status from where you are as you manipulate and manage those around you trying to either keep where you are or get ahead or somehow compensate for what's going on. So to start to say a conversation about work has to begin with the fear of the Lord right sizes us and actually gives us a foundation. Because again, throughout Proverbs, there's so many different competing values of justice and mercy and diligence and taking care of your family and getting up early and staying up late. And you're like, oh, I, can't, I can't do both of those. So how do I balance all the things? And if, if the vision of Proverbs was one of balance, like you were walking a tightrope to do work correctly, I think that would overwhelm us. But if it's rather a foundation of how we see God and the world and our work fitting into that, then it's a valley that we journey with with God. Where we have lots of room to pray and ask for wisdom to fail and struggle for things to shift and change, for us to, to realize we've exaggerated something and diminished something in one season, and so we, we want to compensate in another season, all in ways that aren't earning righteousness, but are trying to be good stewards of what God has given us. To start with an understanding of work as a God-centered framework, that our orientation is not even like what my parents asked of me, what, what I desire, what my culture says, but what God himself says. To fear the Lord is to make him your primary orientation. It has worship and awe and respect. And it has the kind of fear of not wanting to disappoint the one who actually owns you. The one who created you. The one who will judge you. The one who stands over you. So it's this beautiful mixture of love and reverence. 
And we would just apply it in this moment to say, you need a God-centered understanding of work. He is a worker. He created work. He designed us to work. So that helps us actually lean into work, not as making it a God that will rescue us or, or demonize it. You don't have to deify it or demonize it. You can actually move towards it with dignity and ask for God to help you engage work the way he wants you to in the world around us. So, so it starts with the fear of the Lord. I don't know how you think about your job. I don't know what you're measuring for success. I don't know what your performance reviews are like. I don't know what you're dreaming of and the goals that you're setting. But, but this text would end us at really what is the starting place, or maybe you would say it differently, what is the foundation to rest a view of work upon, which is the fear of the Lord. Obviously, this is a distinctly Christian understanding. But I think it's one that actually makes sense of the world around us and should free us or at least kind of make us immune or more immune to some of the things that are real maladies when it comes to how we see work in the world. Again, to make it something where you get an identity would really overwhelm you. To make it something you're entitled to would really overwhelm you. And to keep us out of like a, a boomers versus a Gen Z kind of ethic, starting with the fear of the Lord just resizes all of us. All of us have to shift our orientation and ask, God, what do you want from what you've called me to? Wherever I am, regardless of the dollar amount or lack thereof, regardless of how I feel about what's going on, what does it look like for me to honor Jesus? That would be the foundation for us. And when we don't do that, I think we make the work something that we're ranking ourselves and others with, and that's where all the dysfunction starts to brew and kind of creep in. So I want to spend just some time there. Maybe that's all you need to hear this morning. When it comes to your job, apply the wisdom of Proverbs that the fear of the Lord is the starting place. It's the beginning space. So as you're praying and asking for God to help you or you're praying to whatever you're praying to, maybe you're in parts of a Christian, but you're asking books or podcasts to, to help shape things for you, right? you're asking for help to hear God's word says that help comes from God alone as we orient our life and heart around him. Okay, take that in. If, the, if that's a foundation, I want to talk about maybe five things in this text, five observations, uh, and I want to use D's to help us. Um, so, and I realized I have a repetition in my D's. Sorry about that. So here they are. Uh, I want you to see diverse domains. I want you to see delight in work. I want you to see um, dignity in the work itself. I want you to see that uh, called not to worry or don't worry about the future and then, and then dignity in the community. Actually, it should be diligence in our work, not delight in our work, diligence in our work. Okay, so, so first, diverse domains. When it comes to work, this text helps us see we don't just have one kind of work. We have diverse domains. So, so look in verse 10 of chapter 31. It's on page 552 if you've closed that pew Bible. It says this, An excellent wife who can find... She is far more precious than jewels. And maybe, again, if this is a, a template for you to live into women, you would say, an excellent wife who can find nobody. It's impossible. Nobody can actually live into this. So, so what's the bigger view here that's going on? The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. So there's a family orientation here to the way this woman actually engages with her work. If you go to verse 15, it says she rises while it's yet night and provides food for her whole household and portions for her maiden. So for her family and for those who work for her, she has a eye that her work is engaging in these 
different domains. It has something to do with other people. That our work is not first a fulfillment of our own identities. It actually is meant to contribute to the world around us. And it has some value to other people, which stretches out our understanding of the bottom line. It redefines the bottom line for us, not just with what is the income or how much is in my account or what's my job title, but how am I blessing those around me? It goes on past just kind of family and workers. Look in verse 20. It says she opens her hand to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. So there's an idea that our work is actually to benefit those in need. It's to contribute to the culture and society around, to be a blessing to those who are around me, which has all kinds of implications for how you think about just wages and what you pay for certain things and how you negotiate deals and engaging with people in ways that actually have justice to them, which we'll spend some more time on next week when it comes to justice and mercy. And then now let's drop down to verse 27. She looks well to the ways of her whole household. So, so her eyes are, the worker's eyes are past just herself to these diverse domains, which, which gives a way of talking about like how is your work going past just what you might get a performance review for. It's a way for, for those who stay at home, for those who, who are struggling in their employment to think about, I'm not just getting this one paycheck. My goal is not to get a paycheck. My goal is to do work in all the areas of my life. The Bible talks about work in holistic ways, not just in paycheck ways. So, so there's diverse domains. Secondly, she is, she is diligent in her work. She just simply works hard. The biblical view of work is that it's hard partly because of the fall, but partly because it matters. God's designed us just to eagerly lean in, to give, to give it effort, to actually make meaningful contribution, take some work, and actually is somewhat difficult. So drop in verse 13 of chapter 31. It says this, She seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands. And she is like the ships of a merchant. She brings her food from afar. I don't think this means she also has like a shipping industry that she's in charge of. I think it's a metaphor for she's willing to do whatever it takes. She's going far. She's working hard. If something's not there in front of her, she's going to go seek it out. This is effort, language, and imagery. She, she rises while it's yet night. So she, she gets up early and provides food for her household and portions to her maiden. She considers a field and she buys it. She thinks through what's going on. She works hard to kind of evaluate something with the fruit of her hands and she plants a vineyard. So she's, she's after actually productivity and fruitfulness. She dresses herself with strength and she makes her arms strong. Again, women, you're like, poof, that's a lot for me to embody. But think broader to holistic work. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. She puts her hands to the distaff and her hands hold the spindle, which is imagery of like of ancient weaving. So what you see in these just couple of verses is a description of diligent work. She, she is working hard. God calls us to work hard. The biblical frame, the Proverbs wisdom is that we would engage our work with diligence, that we would see what's in front of us. And because we're understanding our orientation towards God, we would move towards it with, with hard work. And there's a lot of this, those commands to work hard and the idea that if we work hard, it brings about a profit. So like Proverbs 14, 23 says, in all toil, there is profit. But, but that word toil is significant. It actually takes effort. There, there's work there. But mere words end in poverty, Proverbs 14, 23 says. And, and then it just says that hard work is hard. Uh, Proverbs 14, 4 says, where there is no oxen, the manger is clean 
but abundant crops come by the strength of the ox. And they're like, oh, now I have to have farm animals as well. I have to have chickens in my backyard. No, no, no. It's a metaphor for the mess that happens as people learn and grow and work. If there's no work, things are pretty easy. If there's actually productivity and things are advancing, it's, it's messy, right? So you see commands here for like that skilled work should be rewarded. There's imagery in nature. Hey, look to the ant who doesn't um, carry like a whole lot of body weight, but is diligently engaging in what's going on and stores up food for another season. There's effort language throughout the book of Proverbs. And then what was fascinating to me to kind of survey the book is to see the photo negative of diligence to laziness. I think there are more commands against laziness than we see to actually go towards diligence. So, so coming from the other direction, Proverbs would caution us to entitlement or, or being arrogant or, or avoidant. I don't know what the motivations for laziness are in your life. Sometimes I feel overwhelmed and don't know what to do. So laziness is an easier option. Sometimes I'm overconfident in myself and so I'll put it off later. So there's a procrastination that's rooted in pride for me. Sometimes there's spaces where I just simply don't value what I'm doing or value the people that I'm doing it for. Those things just for me lead towards laziness. I don't know what it would be in your life, but, but Proverbs has command after command after command not to be a sluggard, not to be lazy, uh, not, not to sit back in ways where we actually are idle. And in those spaces, we, we see um, kind of some mockery even. One commentator said uh, the, the writer of Proverbs is most sarcastic and comedic when it comes to the lazy person. Listen, listen to these excuses from Proverbs 26. 13 to 16. The sluggard says, there's a lion in the road. There's not a lion in the road, but the sluggard says there's this danger out there. There's a lion in the streets. That's why I can't go. I'm making excuses of the peril of, I don't know how many lions you've seen like in Jesus movies, but I don't think they were like prominent in that space. As a door turns on its hinges, so a sluggard in his bed, the sluggard buries his hand in the dish and it wears him out to bring it back to his mouth. So lazy, can't, can't bring it from the 14 inches of the table to, to his mouth. A sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can answer sensibly. So there's this kind of excuses that we should examine. What is it that's keeping me from being diligent in my work? And, and the Proverbs, because the fear of the Lord is the orientation, I can examine those things with some humility and ask for God to help me. There, there are places where you just see sloth and you see the The way of the sluggard is like a hedge of thorns, but the path of the upright is a level highway. This is not hedge of thorns of protection. For the lazy person, it's like constantly getting caught in thorns and climbing over things that are painful. Proverbs 19.15 says, Slothfulness cast into a deep sleep, and an idle person will, hung, will suffer hunger. Uh, 1924 says the sluggard buries his hand in the dish and can't even bring it back to his mouth. You see that multiple times. And it's exposing kind of the fallacy of laziness. It applies to us and says this is too difficult, but actually what's more difficult is to not be diligent according to Proverbs. Because when it comes to harvest time, those who haven't actually gotten up and sowed seed in the field earlier now don't have what it takes when they need help. So the Bible flips laziness upside down, not as the easy road, but the harder road. But like all sin and temptation, on the front end it sure is easier, even though on the end of it, it brings about all kinds of pain. 
And the warning in Proverbs, again, with this idea of different domains, is that it doesn't just affect you. There's an idea that we have in our individualism that my work ethic is just about me. And if I don't want to get promoted, who cares? If, if I don't want to actually work hard, who cares? If I don't want to sacrifice for these relationships, who cares? But Proverbs 18.9 says, Whoever is slack in his work is a brother of him who destroys. So to be lazy in our work that God's entrusted to us has an impact and an effect on others. If you wonder what the Bible says about work, it says think about it broadly in multiple domains, not just your paycheck. And there's a call to God's people to be diligent. And a gospel truth that's super important here is because God has done all the work on our behalf, we're free to work hard not to build an identity or for righteousness or to make ourselves acceptable. We're free to work from a secure identity, which means you can take risks, which means you can be wrong, which means you can actually fail and still be loved. What a beautiful thing the scriptures kind of call us to, to work hard, knowing that God is the one who worked hard on our behalf to make us right. So, so diligence. Third, I want you to see a dignity in good work itself. I love authors who just talk about like Christian work is good quality work. To honor God with our work is to actually do the best that we can. And so like in verse 18, it says that she perceives that her merchandise is profitable. She sees just the value in what she's done. She, she sees and understands that there's value just in doing hard work. The dignity is in doing good work itself. In verse 22 and 24, there's this imagery of like actually in secret. And it's not just being promoted or praised. And just think about the way um, being seen motivates you at work when you're pretty sure nobody's going to notice how that demotivates you if someone else's optics are your primary orientation. If pleasing your boss or your coworkers is the thing that's most important to you, then you're more motivated when that will be recognized and less motivated when that won't be recognized. And the 16-year-old is back in the kitchen. I mean, like, don't imagine that because you'll never eat out again. But just imagine, like, what could happen behind the scenes. And I remember that our boss sometimes would, like, bring something back into the kitchen and just simply hold it up and go, like, would you eat this? Like, seriously, man, if this was put in front of you, would you eat this? And to see the guy hustling to get stuff out the window, to watch him go like, no, I wouldn't eat that. Or, hey, would you eat off this table that's so dirty? Or, or would, you, would you take orders from somebody? Would you give about work? So, so there's something about just dignity in the work itself that, that this chapter is called us to in Proverbs. Uh, for, fourth, I want you to see that she doesn't worry about the future. She trusts God's economy that diligence pays off and that small things bear fruit. And so when it comes to the future, she's not afraid, which, man, this could be a healing word for us. To think about anxiety in our culture. Look in verse 21 of chapter 31. She is not afraid of snow for her household, for her whole household is clothed in scarlet. And you can see that little six there as a footnote if you're in the text. You can translate that not just scarlet, but it's double layered. Like they have what they need. They're ready for the winter. She's not afraid of the future because she's diligently worked to prepare. She makes bed coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. She makes linen garments and sells them. She delivers sashes to the merchants. Strength and dignity are her clothing. And she laughs some sort of benefit, some sort of beauty. Think things actually grow. God's designed the world to work that way. So chapter 3 and chapter 8 tell us that God created the universe with a fabric and with like a grain that we should go with. 
And with the grain of the universe is not quick fixes and windfall incomes and, and shortcuts to making a profit. Those aren't the way that God designed the universe. He actually designed it slow, incremental change. Just think about nature. Think about how long things take to grow. And God's designed our lives like that. Again, there's exceptions, right? So Job and Ecclesiastes, even lots of the Psalms, the heart-wrenched prayers when things don't go the way they're designed. But, but the idea is that if I'm diligent, I don't have to worry about the future, both because God's designed this thing to grow slowly over time and there's a sovereignty to this universe. Shot through the book of Proverbs is a promise and a reminder and a comfort to the fact that God is over this thing. A man makes his plans, but the Lord directs his steps. We cast lots, but the Lord is the one who actually determines where they fall. That God's sovereignty in the middle of our pain and suffering and disillusionment and frustration actually gives us a ton of hope where we don't have to be afraid even if the bottom falls out. So, so the general idea here is she's working hard and diligent. That puts her in a space where she doesn't have to worry about the future. And if the bottom fell out, God's love and sovereignty would be the space that we would rest on to go, I don't have to worry about that. So those of you who are working diligently to find jobs, keep jobs, figure out how to manage your business this side of COVID, how to hire the right kind of people that the, just the workforce is so shifted and changed, you're having a hard time staffing the things that you're trying to actually accomplish. And all those spaces to hear you don't have to worry about the future if you're diligent and knowing that God actually cares for you, sees you, and is working with you. So, so diverse domains, being diligent in our work, seeing dignity in the work itself, not, not worrying, don't worry about the future. And then finally, there's a dignity in the community. This reputation that she has actually precedes her into the community. God's designed our work ethic as followers of Jesus to be not reputation building in a way that we get praised. Remember, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom but in a way that actually is acknowledged and recognized by those around us. So, so you might say things like this, Christian workers should be the most responsible, the most on time, the most fruitful, the, mo the most diligent. I don't mean you must be the most amazing person in every single way. I mean, whatever it is that you're called to and putting your hand to because you're working diligently, because the fear of the Lord is kind of your primary starting place, because you understand kind of the different domains that you're in as you engage with all of your life and heart as worship unto the Lord, Colossians 3 says, in that space then, people around you should recognize that. So it says in verse 31, give her the fruit of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. That's a way of talking about the community seeing things. Same way that her husband is in the gates and people are acknowledging like he's a lucky man because of her. In this space, it's her reputation as well in those spaces because her work actually has earned the respect of those around her. Which, friends, can I just be honest? I think this is a space for us to lean in and acknowledge the way this works in our culture because the day is going to come where being a Christian at work might become increasingly difficult. Where there are ethics and there are commands and there are places where you feel some tension between what you're being asked to do and say and what God's word would actually call you to. This would be the way most of history has worked. We've been in a really unique space in our country for hundreds of years, but we're catching up now to the rest of the world that has known the idea of claiming the name of Jesus, having the fear of the Lord being my primary orientation, means I'm not as concerned about the world around me in ways that I'm bowing to and I'm asking that to justify and save me. 
That puts me in a space where there's some hard decisions that I make. I think those days are upon us. Those days surely are coming. And this is no like doomsday thing. It's just the way the Bible talks. And the way it encourages Christians is that you would work in such a way that when it comes raining down on you at work, those who have stuff they want to say and slander you with have no grounds for it. Because you've lived in such a way and labored in such a way that actually has had dignity and beauty and added value. So, so you should be like the most irreplaceable person in the company. The way you work, actually, they think, man, if we cut this person because of their religious views, what will we do about the way they lead and the way they serve and how their division performs? That's kind of the idea that's in front of us in these spaces. So 1 Peter chapter 2 says it like this, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, those who live in the world that's not their world, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, to not have the love of the world be your primary orientation, but the fear of the Lord, which these things actually are waging war against your soul, he says. Keep your conduct among those who don't know God honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. To, to be at the city gates and known as a person who's diligent, who cares about people, who understands the bottom line is not just economics. There's things about around people that actually really matter. To have dignity in the work itself, to not be anxiously worried about the future, but just plodding along. Those things actually affect our hearts and they change how we engage in the world as we do our work. So she understands as a model for us, diverse domains, the, the diligence of work, the dignity in work itself, a call to, to not worry, don't worry about the future, and then to have dignity in the community as we do the work itself. Okay, all of that I think is beautiful, it's inspiring, it's helpful, and it wouldn't save you. To live into those things perfectly wouldn't actually reconcile you to God. You couldn't do that list in such a way that actually would, would be enough to pay the wages of your sin. So Jesus came into our world to make a way for us to be rescued and forgiven and set free so that we can do the work he's called us to with great joy. And this idea of the fear of the Lord actually being the foundation of wisdom, it being what she's most focused on. We see another passage like in verse 9, or chapter 19, verse 21, 23 says this, about the fear of the Lord. Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it's purpose of the Lord, it's the purpose of the Lord that will stand. What is desired in a man is steadfast love, and a poor man is better than a liar. The fear of the Lord leads to life, and whoever has it rests satisfied. He will be visited, and he will not be visited by harm. Dang. The fear of the Lord leads to life, and whoever has it rests satisfied. He will not be visited by harm. The way the Bible talks is that when God is our primary orientation, that's the thing that satisfies us. And then from that space, we now begin to move towards the work that he's called us to. So Ephesians chapter 2 says we're not saved by works, but those works that God's ordained for us to do, we can now do being reconciled to him with a ton of freedom. I want to call you to that if you're a follower of Jesus. And we stop every sermon at this place with communion. Just put a flag in the ground to say, it's what Christ has done that makes all this possible. Again, his work on the cross is what allows us to work. That's the connection that I want you to make. And the reality of the gospel is that God frees you and rescues and saves in ways that actually transform and change you. So would you bow your head and close your eyes for just a moment? If you're a follower of Jesus, I want to ask you to take a deep breath. Prepare to take communion as a symbol of your faith in Jesus. If you're trusting in his broken body and shed blood on your behalf, Scriptures say you're a follower of Jesus. You're reconciled to him. You're a child of God. 
I want to invite you to come and take communion. And as you do that, let the tastes of that and holding the physical reminder remind you of what God has done for you and let it nourish you for the fatigue you feel when it comes to work, for the questions and tensions you have. Bring those to God and ask that what he's done for you would make sense of those things. If you're not a follower of Jesus, I want to ask you to stay in your seat. There's no pressure to participate in this. This is not a a meal that would rescue you or save you. It's a symbol of faith. And so if you're not ready to trust in Christ, I want to ask you just to sit and pray. Ask for God to speak to you. I don't know if work overwhelms you, if that is a place of primary identity. Maybe you could just ask for help in those spaces where you're trying to carry so much that actually can't kind of hold what you're asking it to. Work can't give you an identity. It can't give you a hope. It can't give you a future. It's very, very fragile by itself. So maybe you would just ask God to help you, help him, help you see if there's another foundation, help you see if there's something about him that would make sense of your work. There's prayers in the back of that little bulletin that would give you some examples of what it could sound like to pray, but I want to invite you to do that. Let me just pray now, and then we'll take communion. We tear a piece of the bread off and dip it in the cup. There's uh, each aisle here in, in the overflow room. Bar, thanks for what you've accomplished, and thanks for the invitation to come and join you. We need to be nourished, though, by the truth of what you've done for us. So would you speak to us now? Uh, Would you strengthen and heal and, again, nourish us uh, for the work ahead as we reflect on the work that you've already done? So speak to us now loudly, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Come when you're ready, and then we'll sing.